got a lot of ground to cover this morning. We're going to be studying the book of Exodus, and uh, we're going to kind of be going through the majority of the book, kind of bouncing back and forth between a, a bunch of verses. So if you'd like to follow along in your Bible, that's great. Um, I'm going to put the verses that we're going to be touching on this morning on the screen for our convenience. But um, the book of Exodus, I, I want us, as we study it this morning, I want us to understand or look at the questions of how and why does God save us? So asking that question, obviously, uh, we need to assume, or we do assume, that, that that means that we need to save, be saved from something. And we know that we have all sinned against God, every one of us here, and that is a serious problem. And it's our most serious problem that we encounter in our lives because it separates us from God. If we're not saved from sin, we'll live now physically, but we will eventually die and be separated from God. And that's not the way that we want to live or die or spend our eternity. We need to be saved from sin. So how does God save us? And maybe um, a question we don't often to stop, stop and think about, why does God save us? How and why does God save us? So I want us to look at these and think about these questions as we look uh, at the book of Exodus. First, God saves us by His grace. That is how God saves us. The answer the Bible gives us in the book of Exodus is that He saves us by His grace. And grace is God's unmerited mercy. That's what grace is. God saves us by showing mercy to us when we do not deserve us. And the Bible deserves it. <clears throat> the Bible teaches that we deserve destruction and death for our sin. And that is a biblical statement that we see in the book of Exodus. The Exodus, book of Exodus is a picture of that, uh, particularly uh, when we look at Pharaoh and the Egyptians. So if we want to go to, uh, we're going to be in uh, chapter 7 first. God, through Moses, told Pharaoh to let his people go out of Egypt. And uh, they were slaves there. But Pharaoh refused to let them go, as we know. In uh, chapter 7, verses 14 through 18, it says... So the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning when he goes out to the water, and you shall stand by the river's bank to meet him. And the rod which has turned to a serpent you shall take in your hand, and you shall say to him, The Lord, of the, the Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness, but indeed until now, you would not hear. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the waters which are in the river and the rod with the rod that is in my hand, and they shall be turned to blood. And the fish that are in the river shall die, the river shall stink, and the Egyptians will loathe to drink the water of the river. And that begins the first of the ten plagues that we see in the book of Exodus that happened in Egypt. This was the plague of blood. It was followed by the plague of frogs and the plague of gnats. Fourth was the plague of flies, then livestock dying, boils, followed by hail, locusts, and then the plague of darkness. And all these plagues were clear pictures of God punishing the Egyptians for uh, uh, enslaving the Israelites. Every one of them came in, about, uh, in response to Pharaoh's rebellion against God. And that sets the stage for the final plague um, and uh, for the tenth plague, the final judgment, the plague of the firstborn. In Exodus 11, uh, verse 
4 through 6, it says, Then Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the female servant, who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn out of the animals. Then there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as was not like it before, nor shall it be like it again. So even after Pharaoh was threatened with this, Pharaoh still refused to obey God. And that set stage for what we uh, know as the Passover, which we see in Exodus 12, when God promised that he would send a destroyer. And that's the word that's used in Exodus 12 and 23, a destroyer who would strike down every firstborn child and animal in Egypt. And we also need to understand, too, that the Israelites were also in Egypt, too. They were there, and that meant that the destroyer would come over their homes as well. God's people, a picture of the payment due, not just to Pharaoh, but to all the people in their sin. Neither Pharaoh, nor the Egyptians, nor, nor the Israelites were innocent of sin before the holy God. The promise of Exodus was that destruction was coming over all. However, God in his grace, in his unmerited mercy, provided deliverance and life through sacrifice. God provided a way for the firstborn in homes to be saved and ultimately for the slaves to be freed through sacrifice. Specifically, God saved his people by the blood of the lamb in Exodus. In Exodus 12, starting in verse 1, we'll go through verse 13. It says there, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first of the month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, on the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat, where they eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning. And what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. So shall eat it. So you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the house where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike in the land of Egypt. Okay. Understand the picture here. <clears throat> Taking a perfect, pure, spotless lamb that God said to go and get. Bring it into your house for 14 days, he says. And 
I know our household, and I'm sure there's others here, you know, you bring an animal into your house for a certain amount of time, you're going to create a bond. 14 days. If it was two days at our house, there'd be a bond. But 14 days, you have this lamb in your house. Your kids are taking care of it, feeding it, playing with it, whatever it might be. Getting used to this lamb, you take it and you slaughter it. You take its blood with your children watching. You wipe it across the doorposts of your home. And that's an image that's going to stick with your family and your children for a long, long time. You can imagine your, your children uh, uh, asking mom or dad, why are you doing this? What is the reason for this? And your response would be, destruction and death are coming. But because of this lamb, it is a substitute sacrifice. And you look at your older brother, you know, if you, if you were another child and you had an older brother, you'd look at your brother and realize that this lamb died for him instead. And that night, you can only imagine the cries coming from all the homes across Egypt. And the only people who were exempt from the judgment on that night were those who trusted in the blood of that sacrificial lamb. Judgment did not pass over the Israelites because they were better people. Not at all. It didn't pass over them because they were sinless. Judgment only passed over the Israelites because they trusted in the blood of that lamb, a substitute sacrifice provided by God in his grace. So we'll come back to Exodus 12 here in a minute, but we're going to go over to Exodus 24. After the Passover and the plague of the firstborn, God's people did leave Egypt. Uh, and they came to Mount Sinai to worship God and to enter into a covenant relationship with Him. In Exodus 24, it, it is the first fully described public worship service that we can read in the Bible. It's kind of like a marriage celebration of God committing Himself to His people and then committing themselves to God. Beginning in verse 3 of Exodus 24, it says, So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said we will do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. And he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins. And half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. He then, then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. Moses read all the words and the rules from God to the people of Israel. He did it twice in this passage. And after reading those, the people of Israel said, we're going to go ahead and obey those. But as soon as they said that, what did Moses do? Uh, Moses sent men to offer sacrifices. So if the people were going to follow all the rules of what God said, why would Moses have to go ahead and immediately offer a sacrifice? And that's because the people couldn't keep their promise. Sinful people could not keep their promise. They just said all the words that the Lord has spoken will do, but that wasn't true. They were sinners just as you and I are. And it wouldn't be long before they would go totally against God's word 
And they would sin, rebel against God and His covenant, and the payment for sin is death, which we see in Romans 6, verse 23. So, God provided sacrifices by His grace. Moses threw blood over the altar as a picture, again, another picture, of a substitute sacrifice to cover sin, to show that the, uh, the death penalty for sin had been paid by another sacrifice. In this picture, we see the just penalty due to sin had been paid through sacrifice. Then we get to Exodus 24 and 8. Gets a little weird in Exodus in that in that eighth verse. They say the people say we will obey all of God's words. Then Moses starts throwing blood on the people. That's kind of odd. I'm glad we don't practice that today. You know, I think if we did that today, we would not get many people coming to worship our God. But the point is that. Sinners can only come into a covenant relationship with the holy God of the universe if there is a sacrifice. That is the only way. Just like God saved his people by blood of the lamb in Exodus 12, here in Exodus 24, God seals his promise with the blood of another's life, a substitute sacrifice. And then we get to uh, verse 9 of chapter 24. It says, Then Moses went up, also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet as it was were a paved work of sapphire stone, and it was like the very heavens in its clarity. But on the nobles of the children of Israel he did not lay his hand. So they saw God, and they ate, and they drank. They beheld God. Sinners were beholding the God of Israel, our God. They had a meal to celebrate their relationship with God. And one thing I love about the Bible is its unity that we can see from beginning to end. It's one big story that has uh, huge ramifications, not only for those uh, uh, during the time of the Bible, but us as well. It's not just a story about the Israelites. It's a story about you and us today. We have all sinned. Me, you, all of us have sinned against God. And Romans, 20, Romans 6 verse 23 makes it clear that the payment for our sin is destruction and death. And eventually physical death, we, uh, we will die an eternal spiritual death, separated from God for eternity. But in God's grace, in His unmerited mercy, God has not left us alone, myself or any of you, in our sin alone. By His grace, God made a way for us to be saved from destruction and death. Death. God sent Jesus, his son, to come here to this earth to be the perfect sacrifice, to, live, the, to, to uh, uh, live a perfect life that none of us could live. Then, although he had no sin to, uh, price uh, to pay for, you know, he died that sacrifice on the cross for our sins. Jesus died as our substitute sacrifice for our sins. Jesus is the Lamb of God whose blood saves us from destruction and seals us from eternal life. Just like the Israelites, however, many years ago, trusted in the blood of uh, a lamb sacrifice or an animal sacrifice, and that covered their sin, Jesus covers our sin for eternity. No matter what we have done, no matter how guilty our conscience may be, no matter how stained our past is, no matter how ashamed we might be no matter 
no matter what, no matter what, we are saved by the grace of God if we come into the contact of the blood of Jesus Christ. We can behold God in a covenant relationship with Him, which is why it happens uh, we get to, uh, get to worship today with our new covenant. We get to uh, partake of the Lord's table every week. God prescribes a meal where we are to celebrate the giving of Jesus' blood and the shedding of Jesus... Uh, Jesus' body and the shedding of Jesus' blood for our sins. Matthew 6, 26 says, Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. That's why we come together every week to remember and celebrate the reality that we have been forgiven by the blood of Jesus. And now we behold God in a relationship with him that will last forever. How is it possible for a room full of sinners like you and me to gather today before the holy God and worship him and enjoy him? How is that possible? And it's only possible by his grace, by the grace of God. Not one of us here can get it done by merit, by any means, by anything that we do. The only reason here that we are worshiping is because the mercy and grace of God. He saves us by our grace, by his grace. Secondly, God saves us for his good. I'm sorry, that should say for our good, not his good. That should be our good. Pardon my penship. I got that one wrong. So... There's two answers in Exodus that uh, uh, why God saves us. First is because God saves us for our good. At the end of chapter 13, we discover that God would lead his people with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Um, you have a mass uh, amount of people who are following a cloud where the cloud tells them where to go, where not to go, where to stop, where not to stop. And in Exodus 14, God leads them to the edge of the Red Sea. And by this time, the Egyptians were wishing that they had their slaves back. They wanted those slaves back. So Pharaoh sends an army after them. Some people never learn. You know, Pharaoh, he just would not give up on, on, on getting what was his. And he just never learned. And the Israelites, of course, were frightened for good reason. you got to huge body of water in front of you, nowhere to go, and you've got an army that's coming to get you behind you. You've got nowhere to go. Moses tells them in chapter 14, verse 13, it says, And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. All of a sudden, God splits the sea in half and sends his people through on dry ground. And we need to understand that was dry ground. You know, I would just, we know good and well, if you were to remove water from a, a, a lake bed now, immediately it would be just silty, muddy, sticky. But God provided a safe way through dry ground. And all of a sudden, you know, as the Egyptians made it through, the, 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 I'm sorry, the, the Israelites made it through, the Egyptians started walking through and the waters came crushing down 
upon them. So we're starting to get a picture of the good that God saves his people for. God leads, God fights for his people. This is why God saves us too. He saves us for our good. He leads, guides, and fights for us. Then we get to a song of worship in Exodus 15, where we see three miracles back to back. First, the water God's people come to is bitter, so he miraculously makes it sweet. In chapter 16, they can't find food, so God provides bread from heaven in the morning and meat in the evening. In Exodus 17, they can't find any water. God miraculously provides water out of a rock. And in all this, we see how God sustains and satisfies and strengthens his people. When we, when we get to Exodus 18, God gives wisdom to Moses on how to lead his people, which was not an easy task. Uh, that sets the stage for one of the most significant and famous moments that we can read about in the Old Testament when God gives his people the word, starting with the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. The first commandment, I am the Lord your God who, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And I want us to think about how all of these commandments are good for us. In the first commandment, God is showing us the way to abundant life through worship of the right God. No other gods before me. None. What if you were to live our entire life? We would, we would live um, dedicating ourselves to something, living for something, uh, having that, that, that thing the center of our lives. But when it comes to the end of our life, we realize it was totally empty. We only find out that we've wasted our life. And God is saying here, there is a way to abundant life with the right center, which is him. He is the God of gods. There is no other God before him. Life at God is the center. He is our foundation. In the second commandment, God shows us the way to supernatural love through worship in the right way. It says there in uh, chapter 20, verses 4 through 6, <clears throat> You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is under in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for the Lord your God am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. God here is not just prescribing, I'm sorry, God is prescribing not just who is worthy of worship, but how we ought to worship him in a way that leads to uh, an experience of what God wants us to have. You know, we have to worship him in a correct way for us to gain the blessings of God. And that leads to the third commandment here in verse 7. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. Uh, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This commandment shows us how to cultivate God, a God-glorifying reverence, the greatness, glory, majesty, the wonder and splendor of God. Live humble, holy, uh, understanding the mind-blowing, breathtaking uh, awe and reverence that we need to have for God. That will change the way that we live if we understand and reverence God the way that he needs and deserves to be reverenced. Commandment number four gives uh, us a countercultural rhythm to work and rest. If we see, look in uh, verse 12 of chapter 20, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. 
You know, especially in our fast-paced culture that we live in now, um, it's always work, 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 and more work. And if that is all that we do, we're always looking to uh, work as hard as we can, but not take the rest. That's really kind of goes against what God is prescribing here for the Sabbath. We need to rest. Our bodies need rest. Our minds need rest. We can actually rest in God. It, sometimes in our pride, you know, we can say, I'm just too busy to, to do that for God today. I'm too busy to go to worship. I'm, I'm too busy. You know, we're not busier than God himself. God rested on that seventh day. We're not that busy. We must rest. And God himself modeled that for us. So we need to have that balance of work and rest. Fifth, God gives opportunity. Uh, I'm sorry, God gives us priority on honor in our homes. Exodus 20, verse 12. Honor your father and mother that the days may be long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Children and students, whatever the case may be, it is good to honor your mom and dad because it is a reflection of honor for God. It will be good for your life. Sixth, a priority on protecting others' health. You shall not murder. This is where we realize um, that this commandment in verse 13, like some of the other commandments we see through the Bible, it's not just a, a prohibition uh, against this particular act of murder. It's against any act that may physically harm another person. God clearly speaks here and in other places throughout his word against uh, any form of physical violence or abuse, uh, even anger or rage. For our good, God tells us in his word to prioritize protecting other people. The seventh commandment guards the enjoyment of sexuality according to God's design. When we read, you, know, you should not commit adultery, don't just think about adultery, but based on all of throughout God's word, there are clear commandments against all sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman. God gives this command clearly for our good. This is where each one of us needs to decide if we're going to trust the word of God on sexuality or if we're going to trust the world. And we certainly want to trust God. He has it right for our good. Commandment number eight, you shall not steal. This promotes the enjoyment of possessions that God has given to us. The provisions that he's given to us, the, the things that we might have, um, he wants us to be content in what he has provided us with. Not to go out looking for uh, somebody else's stuff or to gain more or anything like that. Number nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. God is holding us up for truth and trustworthiness in a world of lies and letdowns. You know, we, don't, we want to long for that. In a, in a society where there's so much lies around us, so much untruth, we need truth to be able to anchor in. The Tenth Commandment offers joy and contentment in this world of jealousy and competition. The 17th verse of chapter 20 says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. We can live with joy and contentment with what we have instead of being caught up in jealousy. God's word is good and God's word is good for our good as well. And when we put it all together, it's not that just what... 
God saved us from sin and death and destruction. He does deliver us from that. But he also saves us to something as well, which would be joy and freedom of life. And there's an idea out there today that, that you know, when you, when you follow Jesus, when you choose the, the, the Christian lifestyle, that you're not allowed to have fun anymore. You know, it's not joyful. It's not pleasurable. And that is a complete lie that we need to reject. God has not saved us to make us miserable. God has saved us to have a full, enjoyable life that will last forever. And that doesn't mean that life's going to be easy. That doesn't mean it's going to be a cakewalk. It's life is, uh, is full of sin. You know, we live in a world that's full of sin and involves hurt and pain. Uh, following Jesus, you know, as we've talked about before, could actually make your life a little harder. But our life will be fuller and deeper uh, when we experience the supernatural love and the supernatural delight that we can have in God as, as He leads us. God saves us by His grace for our good. God desires our good. He doesn't save you for the bad. He saves you for your good. Additionally, God saves us for His glory. This is central to understanding the purpose of our lives. Um, we're going to go through a bunch of verses here pretty quick. You know, why did God deliver the people out of slavery? You know, ask ourselves, why did he do that? What was the purpose? And back, to, back in Exodus 3, with the burning bush, God told Moses to go to Pharaoh to bring his people out of slavery. So I want to ask the question, why? We'll start in Exodus 3, verse 12. It says there, So he said, I will certainly be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. This word serve here sometimes is translated as worship. And we know that service is worship. You know, we serve God all week long. We don't just worship him here in this building twice a week. Our worship to him is all week long. Six other days out of the week. So notice this, uh, notice this as we go through. Exodus 4, verse 23, where God tells Moses what's going on to happen, what's going to happen and what he should say. <clears throat> and I say to you, this is what Moses says to Pharaoh, let my son go that he may serve or worship you. Exodus 7, verse 16, Pharaoh doesn't let them go, so God begins to send the plagues. Why does God say he's going to deliver his people? And you, shall stay, and you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. Exodus 8, 1, where we're told God would be sending frogs. The, the Lord God said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. Next, in 8, uh, uh, 20, in verse 20 of chapter 8, then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water. And say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. Chapter 9, verse 1. Then the Lord, got, that Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. We're noticing the pattern. Noticing what's happening here. Exodus 9, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, 
Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. A couple more. Uh, it's interesting when we get to verse 7. Pharaoh's servants get in on the action here. They say, Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do, not, do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh and said to them, Go serve the Lord your God, but which ones are to go? But Pharaoh actually didn't let them go. Later in uh, Exodus 10, uh, we see the plague of darkness in verse 26, uh, where we read that Moses is saying, Our livestock also must go with us, not on a hoof. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know that we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. Finally, we get to Exodus 12, where God institutes the Passover, the deliverance of the people of Egypt. Then, um, of course, we see what Moses says. It all builds up to this moment in verse 31. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Pharaoh learned all too late that you do not stand in the way of worship to God. The whole point of the exodus from Egypt is that God delivers his people out of slavery, as we've already seen, for their good. He then brings them to Mount Sinai where they serve and worship him. And the rest of the book of, Egypt, of Exodus will show us God's instructions on how he is to be served and worshiped. And if we were to summarize uh, the book of Exodus, the first uh, uh, the 20 chapters are about the salvation from slavery, and then the, the final 20 chapters are about the worship of God. And these chapters are really incredible. There's visions uh, of God as a consuming fire there in uh, uh, Exodus 19 and, and in chapter 34 in a powerful scene that, that the Bible talks about over and over again. God causes his glory to pass in front of Moses. So Moses falls on his face in worship, and Moses will meet with God and come away with his face shining. Then the book ends with the glory of God filling the tabernacle in the middle of his people. The whole point is God saves his people for their good, but also for his glory. And when we put all the, that together, there's two implications that I think that we cannot miss. First, this means that casual worship before God is not possible. Sinners deserve destruction and death before a holy God. Yet sinners can be saved, not by anything they do, but by what God and Jesus has done for us. <clears throat> so, when we have been saved like that, what do we do? When we understand the whole picture, the whole ramification of what God has done for us, what do we do? What's one thing we do? We sing, right? We sing, not only because we're commanded to, but because we cannot keep our joy in. We sing and shout to the Lord. We sing His praises. We we. Uh, praise Him and worship Him in song. It is not possible to be saved, to serve and worship to God and be bored by Him. It is not possible. We worship Him. And all the more for us, those of us who have been saved by the blood of Jesus. We gather together every week before this God. It's not possible to know this God and to be casual about what we're doing here this morning. And complacent. It's not possible. 
We have different personalities, but when we realize that what we've been saved from and what we've been saved to, and the God whose grace is the only reason for all that, we are driven to sing. Casual worship is not possible before God who satisfies, leads, and guides and fights for us. The second implication that I want us to understand here, the spread of the gospel is not negotiable. The phrase, they or you will know that I am the Lord, that phrase is used, uh, I believe it's 50 different times in the first four books of the Bible. I want to show us one example in Exodus 14. This is the, the historical path that uh, historians believe that Moses and the children of Israel made uh, from Egypt to, uh, to cross the Red Sea. Uh, the first thing I thought of when I saw this map is, why not just go over the northern tip of that Red Sea? That seems like a lot easier path to me. It's a, basically a straight shot, and then you head south. But, but before they got to the Red Sea, they headed south forever how long, going through mountain, mountain ranges, it looks like, and came to the Red Sea, and then that's where they crossed. This is the historical uh, picture of where it is, it is uh, thought, or this is where they think that the, the crossing happened of the Red Sea. And if you can see this, um, I'll try to describe it, but it's, it's basically a beach with, where you have a steep mountain range behind you. There's no escape to the, uh, to the northern side, it looks like. I guess that'd be the southern side. And then you have the Egyptian forces coming from the northern side. You've got nowhere to go. You've got nowhere to go. I'm not a military expert by any means, but I think I would know enough if I were leading people that this is probably the worst place to take my people to be saved. To a dead end where you're trapped right behind you. You have the opposing army that has the power to overtake you. That just doesn't seem smart. Yet that's what God exactly did in Exodus 14. He deliberately leads his people to the edge of the Red Sea with the Egyptian army about to overtake them. Why would God do this? Why would God strategically lead the people of Israel to this particular place? Exodus 14 Verse 1 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Piharathoth, between Migdol and the sea, in the front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh. And all of his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Why did God lead his people to a dead end? The reason why is so God could split that Red Sea in half. To allow his people to walk on it. And the Egyptians would know that there is one God. One and only true God. The Egyptians would understand that. And he is glorious. God says, I will gain the glory, and that is awesome. God gives his grace, and God gets the glory. God saves his people not just for his glory among them, but for his glory among the world. Exodus 9 and 16, um, this is right before the plague of hail. God says to Pharaoh, but for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power that my name may be proclaimed through all the earth. God put Pharaoh in place. 
God raised him up to be in that position so God in the end could show his glory and power to the entire world. That is amazing. God is causing his people to receive his grace in a way that his glory and name are proclaimed. And that is our mission today. You know, the congregation here labors for the spread of the gospel throughout the world. We have multiple things that we do here to get the, 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 the gospel out. Um, we do the podcast. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you. Well, that's a picture I forgot to, to go to. But that's Moses with God's help splitting the Red Sea. But our podcast, this was taken last night. It's a little snapshot, this information. We've had, um, I think we started this in early 2019. Since then, we have had 97,434 listens since that time. Roughly an audience size of 204 people within the last seven days. Okay? This map shows a pl places where our podcast has been heard throughout the world. Over 60 countries. You got places like Oman, uh, Thailand, China, Russia, the Czech Republic, Canada, uh, Tobago, Morocco, and I could go on and on and on and on and on. Additionally, we send financial support to preachers in foreign lands to help them sustain the spread of the gospel or for whatever needs they have. Frank has been to the Philippines multiple times to help that uh, grow in that area. We've spent finances on advertising, which has given us leads and communication with people of the community um, to do all these things. And I started thinking about this last night and this morning. You know, what we've done here is easy. The podcast is easy. Sending finances is easy. What, what is hard, what is most effective, is our personal contact that we have with those that are around us every day. That's hard. To share the gospel with somebody, to open up to them or have them open up to us or to invite them here, that's hard. Because that gets us out of our comfort zone. This stuff that we do, where we've been able to spread the gospel all over the world, that, that's easy stuff. But the hardest stuff has the best reaction to it. It is the most effective. So I challenge us to apply the book of Exodus to our life in three ways. First, I want us to lean wholeheartedly on God's grace and what Jesus has done for us. Secondly, I want to challenge us to live our life in a way that maximizes the gospel according to God's word for our good, for your good. Don't buy into the idea that Christ means not living for any good. And third, I want to challenge us to live as maximally as we can for our good, labor for God's glory throughout our life. You know, live, live that so others can see the glory of God through our lives. Make Him known to those that we come in contact with on a local level here, and, and the word will spread. The gospel of Jesus includes hearing the word of God, hearing the good news that Jesus came and died for our sins and has made a way for us to be redeemed. 
Believing in Jesus that he is the son of God, and that word believing is loaded. It includes things that we have to do uh, uh, because we believe Jesus is the son of God. We, we believe that he came here and died for our sins. We believe in him. So when we do that, then we change the way of our lives because we believe him. We, we, we don't live that sinful life anymore. We come following Jesus as the model. Additionally, we confess his name as the son of God and we are baptized for the remission of our sins. And it's only then and only then that Jesus adds us to his church. And when we start to live a life that puts Jesus as our Lord, it's the best life we could ever live. It's not the perfect life by any means. Only Jesus lived that perfect life. But when we do this, we live this life and we make mistakes, which we will, we can now go to God on our own and confess those sins to God directly through Jesus. We have that privilege. That was not possible before Jesus died on the cross. We can directly speak with God because of what Jesus has done for us. If there's one here that needs the prayers of the church or would like to be baptized, please come while we stand and while we sing. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.